Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. It is Danny and Gallant. Your reaction to Jamal Adams' contract extension signing? Relief or excitement? I found myself being more relieved. I found myself being more relieved that something that was clearly a goal for both the Seahawks and an expectation on the part of Adams when the trade happened a year ago did not devolve into something that could have become much more messy. So I felt relief. I felt relief that this isn't going to be a problem. Danny, I felt excited because I never was that concerned about it. I always thought it was going to get done, mainly because it had to be done. You traded two first-round picks for him. Were things really going to get to a point where the Seahawks said, you know what, nah, this isn't worth it? Those are the ones that become the trickiest, though, right? Where you got a player that says, hey, you've given up all of that. I don't care what you think is reasonable. I don't care what you think your approach is. I know you can't afford to lose me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in my heels. Or the player who says, okay, I know that you've made me the most valuable at my position. I know that you followed the approach that you've taken at other spots, and that's not good enough for me because I play a different sort of style or I'm more valuable. I, I always thought that there was the possibility when you're negotiating with someone who's at the top of their position grade, it, it can get tough because you're essentially negotiating against yourself. Definitely. But at the same time, I felt like some of the conversations about the negotiations that made it out into the open portrayed said negotiations as a bit more contentious than they actually were. And I would specifically just point to the pro football talk story that said that the Seahawks were exasperated with Jamal Adams within 48 hours of the contract actually getting agreed upon, especially since going into the weekend, Danny, we saw that the details that they were far apart on, they didn't seem like they were that far apart. If they had been different, okay, that would be a totally different story. But uh, to me, that word, exasperated, was rich, and I actually tagged old Florio in it. He responded to me yesterday. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he he, he What did his... he say? Because he's, he's blocked me. Yes? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, he's blocked me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I blocked him back, too. Uh, so I basically tweeted back at him. Uh, he said, they were, and he took their final offer. They win. I had just tweeted at him in the up and, you know, Lowercase, uppercase, lowercase, sarcastic font. The Seahawks are exasperated, Mike Florio. So, to me, that part of it, I think, made it seem like things were a lot more tense, stressful than they probably ever were. One of the things about having Pete Carroll, Danny, and someone who I think is new to Pete Carroll, as opposed to situations in the past where Cam Chancellor had been here for a bit, Mm -hmm. is I think that, that there's still that fresh car smell and maybe a greater appreciation for this setting because he's only been here for a little bit of time. A couple years from now, if we're having this same conversation, then maybe it would get a little more contentious because he would know what Pete's, you know, Pete's best traits, but he'd also probably know some of Pete's flaws and some of the things that he doesn't maybe like about the Seahawks because every single player probably has their own misgivings about whatever team that they play for. I don't think it's perfect for any player across the NFL in terms of where they're playing. Pete Carroll did outline yesterday, and this is a, I don't think we've played this clip yet, in which he talked about this was their plan from the moment they traded for Adams. 
Like that it might have taken them a little bit longer to get to this point. But this was this was the spot. This was what they intended all along. And and I, I, I think that is true. Both sides, when, when they traded for Adams, were hoping that a year after the trade that they would reach an agreement on an extension much like they did. It just took a little bit more. I, I think this is really uh, significant in that the statement that, that we made a long time ago uh, when John you know, sought out getting, you know, making contact and going after him was a big commitment then. You know, we did big commitment in picks and all of that. But the, the thing I really like about this now that it comes through and we, we get to this point is this, this was the plan the whole time, was to, was to go after a great football player, get him in the program, pay what you got to pay to get it done in terms of, of draft picks, uh, and, and then knowing that we were going to redo a contract. And it took a while to get it done, but, you know, it, it's over now. I, I agree with all of that. And I what you're saying about Pete providing an environment that guys love. We, we talked to Nick Ballore earlier today. Nick Ballore spent almost 10 years in this league. He's played for three different teams. He's been with the Jets. He's been with the Niners. He's been with the Detroit Lions for coming here, and he talks about what it feels like. Guys, That is all of that is true. It is a great environment for players. And one of the priorities that the Seahawks, if I could sum up Pete's approach, they try to support the players in every way imaginable to take care of every need that they have in an effort to say, okay, that you should have everything you need to excel and to become the best version, the best player you can be here because we've got all these other things taken away, taken care of. The problem can be is that that approach can make it tougher to tell players no. It can make it harder to tell players no. And we've seen that, right? Yeah. When they told Earl Thomas no, what happened? He's running into the Cowboys locker room and saying, like, if you want me, come get me. He's flipping off the sidelines after he gets hurt. He's not showing up to training camp. When you tell Cam Chancellor, no, we can't do an extension for you right now, he misses the first two games because he thinks when you tell Marshawn Lynch no, like, so. And you could see how that might apply to Dwayne Brown, too, going forward if you make Dwayne Brown happy, then there's other guys that potentially see this as such a friendly situation that they can do the same. The upside of saying we're going to take everything care, we're going to take care of everything for you and make this the best experience possible is that I do think that guys tend to play their best football here. Like we've seen it time and time again that the the number of guys, one of the only free agents that's left and excelled somewhere else I would say is Golden Tate. Like one of the only guys... Time and time again, guys play the their best football when they're here. Whether it's Marshawn Lynch being almost out of the league. Like Buffalo was ready to give up on him. And he comes and he's, he's going to be a Hall of Fame running back because of what he did here. The problem can be it becomes tough to tell that player no. Or those players no. And that's what I worried about. Because when they got to the impasse with, with Jamal Adams, when it gets to, hey, we've made our best offer. We, we've done it. And Jamal's still not taking it. I'm like, well... It can be hard. It can be hard to tell guys no when your program is set up about we're going to give you guys everything you need. Yeah, and this is a situation, though, where it did not end up backfiring, and I think it helped. I do think that it made this situation a lot less stressful than a lot of people, I think, wanted it to be. I think that's a part of it, too. I think people, specifically in the New York market, believed that it would become contentious because they felt it had become contentious. But honestly, I feel like there needs to be a apology given out by a lot of these guys because they never really got Adam's side of the story. They kind of just ignored it and said, oh, well, I mean, you're under contract, so deal with it and take the extension when you get it. But the reality is 
The Jets were 7-9. and nine. Jamal Adams thought that they were going towards being a contender. They pressed the reset button the very next offseason when Joe Douglas comes in. Joe Douglas didn't draft him. He looks at that situation and says, okay, well, if you're rebuilding again and we're going to start from scratch again, I want to get paid now. Do you blame him for that? I mean, he was their best player. I don't think there was any debate about that. So he wanted that, and instead of having a good-faith conversation about an extension, the Jets actually started shopping him immediately. And to, to me, like that, that breaks the trust, and you can see why Adams maybe would have been frustrated going forward about something like that and how it escalated from there into some back-and-forths that are being said through third parties. I don't think there's a bad guy when a player asks out. I don't think there's necessary. I don't think it was that the, the team was wrong or that the player was necessarily wrong. I don't think there has to be a bad guy. I don't think J- Jamal Adams was done wrong by the, the New York Jets. They drafted him sixth overall and, and played him. I, I think that he wanted a different situation, which a player should have every right to ask for. And if he became a little bit more difficult to facilitate that, hey, that's a card that a player has to play. You're, you're right in that there is no necessarily bad guy here. And that's why I'm, I'm not even painting the Jets necessarily in the bad light. But the reality is the Jets stink. They have been a bad organization for their entire existence. Maybe Joe Douglas can change that. But the odds are he's not going to be able to because the ownership is still the exact same. And I, I think the way that we look at these, it's still, it's still slanted in a way where people for the most part are going to side with the teams when a player is unhappy with his situation. And it's interesting because, you know, the way that the NFL is set up is that the worst teams in the league, the worst organizations, are the ones that are drafting these guys. They're getting rewarded for their own incompetence. And when the guy doesn't want to be there, I just find it strange that people aren't looking at the situation and be like, oh, well, yeah, he's on the Jets. Of course he wants out. You know, you would think that there would be a little bit more of that that that, that had taken place after the fact. Instead, it was like this, oh, he's a traitor, essentially. And I think that was coming from people who cover the team, not even necessarily from the Jets. Jamal Adams was the question when when things got to an impasse was would he would he miss games if he didn't get the extension he wanted would he end up not not playing and and sitting out half the season and then and then showing up and he was he was asked yesterday and this is the makeup press conference like that's one of the yeah. one of the great things once you get to the end of the contract negotiation no matter how thorny it's been once you get to the agreement like everything's been fine any sort of friction gets minimized and whether it's swept under the rug or, but Jamal Adams, when he was asked, hey, if it had come down to it and if you, didn't, if you didn't agree to take this extension, would you have sat out games? Here was his answer. Man, <laughs> hell no, man. I'm not booba the fool, man. I'm, I, I wasn't not going to take the contract, man. So, no. Um, you know, where I'm from, man, we, we're definitely taking that, man. Mom called. Um, she called twice. Um, and when mom called and she told me that I needed to take the contract, it was, no, it was, it was a no-brainer. So, mama knows best. This is just the way business gets done, right? Like, yeah. there's no harm in asking. You don't get any penalty for asking. And if if it was, I don't. I agree with you. The idea that the Seahawks were exasperated, I don't. I don't think that's true. I don't think they were moving. But look, like they kept. Cam Chancellor was missing games, and nobody was coming out there saying like, "Oh my gosh, we right. don't know what he's doing." Like they're still express. It's it's the players. It's the players' choice. The players not obligated to sign any contract that's from. They they can sign it. The team isn't necessarily obligated to improve that offer but they're not Seattle's never been the team to say like well you better be careful uh what what you do here because otherwise you're lucky that we're giving you this and by the way there's still a bleeping month until the start of the season you know like if it if this has been a little bit later I could understand that 
but there's still plenty of time for this thing to get situated, and also at the same time, too. Who in the Seahawks would want to leak that out? I mean, that is throwing gasoline on the fire, isn't it? To say, like, oh, we're exasperated with this. I mean, that's almost saying, like, oh, well, Jamal Adams, what he's asking for is unreasonable. No one would ever want to put that out that's in the Seahawks because they know that that would make potentially the situation (laughs) turn into something that would be exasperating. Well, again, Jamal Adams will be sitting down with Wyman and Bob this afternoon. Their show starts at 2 o'clock before we get to Mariners baseball. The pregame show starts at 4 with the first pitch coming at, at 5 p.m. The Mariners beat the Texas Rangers yesterday 3-1. to one. Another great start, uh, this time from Tyler Anderson, who's been extremely consistent. Does Jamal Adams and the certainty that you have where he's got another four years added to his deal, does it change what you expect from this defense going forward? It doesn't change any expectations. I, I, he's in the fold, and, and now I, I, my question is still the exact same as it was at the end of the year. Is the defense that we saw beat up on bad quarterbacks, to be frank, or be, banged up one in Kyler Murray, is that the defense that the Seahawks are? Is that what they're going to be with two new cornerbacks uh, for the entirety of the year? You know, whether it's Akilla Witherspoon or it's Trey Flowers or maybe even Trey Brown, wink, wink, in that, into that conversation. That I wonder about. So I, I think they're in the same spot. Hopefully Adams can be healthy for all 16 games, though. I think they're going to be more like the second-half defense we saw than the first-half defense. I, I think that's what—when we saw Jamal Adams come back from the groin injury, and then even, even more so after he'd been back a, a week after that, and we saw— I. Th- I think we saw this defense turn. I expect them to be more like they were the second half, even though, as you mentioned, they were facing a less intimidating group of quarterbacks. They had a lot of backup quarters. I think they're going to be more like the second half defense than the first half what, defense. What's going to be better, definitively? Their pass rush? I think the same way. I, the, it does feel, even without Jaron Reed, it, it feels like the depth that they have on the defensive line, and maybe it's just because Carlos Dunlap's going to be here the full season. It feels like there's a little extra. And... Carlos Dunlap's addition, I think, put guys in the right spot in the lineup. I think Benson Mayo is an asset when he's coming off as a third down pass rusher. I think that it might be a liability when you have him out there as your base defense. Putting Carlos Dunlap out there as the starter gave you someone who is... It, it not only did he improve that... But now you have uh, an advantage as your, as your starting defensive end, and you also get an advantage. Ben- Benson Mayo, when he comes in, he's more effective in that role. It, it just deepened your pass rush. I think that that addition put everybody in the spots they needed to be. And our guy, Kerry Hyder, who we talked to yesterday, I saw him out there yesterday. He looked fast. He was all over the field. And they, they have a lot of guys now. I, I don't want to make comparisons to you know the the – early 2010s when the when the Seahawks had all of the guys that they had in there and some of them weren't thought to be the players that they ended up being in that system at least going into the 2013-2014 season but they have a lot of bodies out there and I, I think that's really important for a long season and for 60 minute games too with all the offenses that you go up against which have that high tempo that quick pace it's Danny and Gallant uh it's time for us to go around the NFL it's time to go around the NFL. The bottom line on the biggest stories in the NFL every morning at 9.15 with Danny and Gallant. Today's an exceptional day. Football. Laura, what do we got? Uh, first up, we have Keyshawn Johnson on Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin. Uh, he has a pretty 
bold prediction for the Seahawks secondary now that Jamal Adams is locked in. This could be the second coming of the Legion of Boom. Akilah Weatherspoon came over from San Francisco, who's a big, long cornerback that played for the Niners for a couple years out of Colorado. A lot of Richard Sherman in him. Now you bring in a Jamal Adams, and Jamal Adams got a, a lot of Cam Chancellor. He's got a lot of Earl Thomas in him. So when you look at that, that's just the start of a little piece of the puzzle that could turn into some great things. We did this last offseason. I'm not doing it again. You know, with Quinton Dunbar coming in, number two corner in the NFL for pro football focus, Shaquille Griffin, a guy that we liked a lot. That quarterback spot still has a lot of questions at it. And, you know, just going back to training camp yesterday, I, I think they're still trying to figure out the actual pecking order after DJ Reed. I, I don't think they have a clear idea as, as far as who's going to be the guy across. I am intrigued by the amount of opportunities that I saw Trey Brown get yesterday. That is for sure. And, and you need to have guys that can actually make plays on the football. And, you know, what we saw in that preseason game, Danny, with with both Trey Flowers and Akella Witherspoon, I, I, I don't know that it's there yet. You're, it's all hope. You're huffing optimism when you talk about the corners if you're saying anything definitive. They've got some talent there that's competing, but yeah. And the idea, they don't have anybody that's proven the ability to take the football away. Your most established starter is DJ Reed, and he became a starter last season. Exactly. Nope, hard pass. That's crazy. Yep. All right, we have some more grossness from the lawyers involved uh, in the Deshaun Watson case. Um, Deshaun Watson's lawyer, Rusty Harden, held a press conference today and addressed reports that the FBI is investigating Watson. He confirmed that the FBI are investigating, but said, quote, I don't think they are investigating Deshaun. What they are investigating are the allegations that his lawyer, Tony Busby, has made in his lawsuits. He then took shots at Busby, saying, when he goes when he goes a month without y'all putting him in the paper, he almost wilts. I'm urging him to take a vacation, go back on another honeymoon. Uh, So. The FBI is looking into it, which I would assume means that some of the masseuses were flown in from different states. Because that's usually where the, when it becomes a federal issue, it's because it's not just in a single state. Uh, Yeah. Okay, so Deshaun Watson hasn't been in practice the past couple days. And David Coley, the Texans coach, said that it's not an injury situation. Is he going to play this year? Do you think he plays a snap for the Houston Texans? I think it's possible. Really? I think it's possible. I mean, the NFL still hasn't stepped in. I think the NFL is is the one that would be willing to step in here. He would have to... I, I, I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility. I mean, because there might come a certain point where you just have to see if, if he's an active player, whether or not, I guess, the NFL would act, right? I mean, if he plays in a game... Doesn't that potentially allow the Texans a little bit more degree to uh, ability to trade him? Like if he's yes, actually, it does. Right. Yes. Now, I I think that's the entire reason that he's been allowed to come to training camp. Like I'm I'm firmly of the belief that the NFL was, hey, we'll see how people react to this, and if people flip out about it and say, oh my god, I can't believe that he's allowed to practice right now, then we'll put him on the exempt list. And there was not a collective outrage. I I think he should be on the exempt list. But, I don't think he should be practicing, given the number of... It's not he sh- said, she said. It's he said, she, she, and she, and she, and she. It, there's, what, 18 in civil lawsuits, plus another two that have talked to police that have not filed lawsuits? And the NFL's... I think they're entirely seeing like, okay, 
if people don't freak out, and I think it's because the Texans are, are wanting to see if they can trade him, I, I don't see a scenario where he plays this year. And if he, if he does before any of this is resolved, it's gross. And if he does because this is resolved in a civil lawsuit and they say like, oh, we've reached a settlement with all the parties involved and there's nothing further, it's gross. Why not just put him on the exempt list? It's really yes. an easy solution here. I also hate that it's become a shorts measuring competition between two lawyers that I am very familiar with having lived in Houston. I mean, Rusty Harden is the guy that you hire when you're guilty probably. And... Busby is one of the most obnoxious preening show pony lawyers that I think I've ever seen. The guy bought a Sherman tank and had it in his front yard. And I think Harden's actually right with that assessment of him at the end. But it's not about them. It should be about the victims. And these guys are making it about themselves. Well, things aren't going very well for the Bears this week. We found out why they signed 39-year-old left tackle Jason Peters on Monday as they announced today that their second-round pick is having back surgery. Ooh. And now, uh, who is also a left tackle, and Justin Fields is sitting out with a groin injury. Oh. I thought the game slowed down for Justin Fields. <laughs> uh, isn't that what he said? Maybe that's because he was so good with a groin injury. Look, that, that team is a, is a hot mess. That is that is a terrible situation. If I'm Justin Fields, I'm terrified that they're going to put me out there before I'm ready. But they're a functioning hot mess. That's what's weird. You know, they're, they're not an absolute crater. They are the kind of team that has the ability to win eight or nine games despite being the mess that they are. Isn't that the worst spot to be in the NFL? Yeah. Like, isn't that, wouldn't you rather be bad with the idea of we need to reload this thing to get good rather than our our ceiling here is a wild card playoff berth and a smacking in the first round? Andy Dalton should feel right at home. <laughs> oh, boy, the top they row. got the right guy. They got the right guy to get you just mediocre. Pretty similar color scheme, too, to Cincinnati they have in Chicago. So, yeah, right back at home. I will say that with Justin Fields in the mix, though, it it could potentially be different where you're an absolute mess of a team, and yet the quarterback is able to single-handedly keep the team afloat. We'll squeeze in uh, one last small one here. I liked this from Jamal Adams yesterday when he was asked about – you know, the, the Rams kind of talking some trash after they knocked the Seahawks out of the playoffs last year. Trash that the Rams are talking after the playoff game add to the fire you guys have on D. What we seeing in week five? I think so. Yeah, we'll see him. We'll see him. What I really yeah! Like, what I really there like we go. Dave Wyman has always told us that as a player, you don't really know what who you're playing next, what game is where. What He knew week five. He knew right away when yeah, they we'll were playing the Rams. We'll see him. Yeah, I love it. I like it too. All the spice. I I, I want to put the Rams on the top as far as the Seahawks rivals go. You know, I I, I know that it's the 49ers because of the history from the 2010s, but I can't stand that team, that organization. Now they're fans. They're stupid stadiums, SoFi Stadium that doesn't even have proper pizza. Come on. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I love that response from Jamal Adams. Me too. It is Danny and Gallant. What does this defense look like with Jamal Adams going forward? We'll let Pete Carroll tell us next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. The most important thing about the Jamal Adams contract is not that it's done. The most important thing about it, and sometimes we forget this, is what he does from here on out, right? Right. Like, this isn't—the goal for a franchise is not to pay a dude. 
That maybe the player's goal. Well, they the, gave him this contract. I mean, clearly he's going to have nine and a half sacks every single season the rest of his career, Danny. Come on. Well, maybe, maybe not. But you are paying him to be the cornerstone of your defense going forward, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're you're paying him, and when you when you get a player of this caliber, it's not just what he's going to be able to do, but what he's going to be able to do for your defense. He needs to become, if not sort of the the leading face, like he needs to be at the forefront. He needs to help your defense have an identity and, and a swagger. He needs to set the tone. It's interesting the way that his contract sets up too, at least with the details that we have now available to us, where the actual cap hits themselves are backloaded, and they're backloaded in a spot where Bobby Wagner's contracts are going to be off the books and maybe Russell Wilson's contract is going to be off the books. But well, we hope Russell Wilson's contract's not off the books. Right, like, that exactly. would be terrible. But like, that Wagner, would be a terrible step. With Wagner, it makes sense, though, because you probably are shifting the centerpiece of your defense eventually when Bobby Wagner turns 32, 33 years old at that middle linebacker spot. And nothing necessarily against Bobby. This is just sort of the way that things go now for... Guys who are in their 30s playing that position. Just look at K.J. Wright, 67th best player in the NFL, still doesn't have a job. This is the point where Seattle's defense probably goes through a bit of an identity change if it hasn't already. The Legion of Boom group, which runs through 2017. The Legion, 2017 is kind of your last gasp of that group. It's Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor getting hurt and Earl Thomas came back the next year. But that 2017 is when you you sort of saw that you gotten everything you could out of that group and then it underwent a change. Sherman was released, Cam Chancellor retired. Earl Thomas was entering the final year. Well, he still had 2 years left on his contract, but entering the point where his his desire for for more financial security would become an increasing issue. This is going to be the after that interim where Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright were really the mainstays, we're now going to see sort of a, a, a different generation, someone with a different identity that's your leader. And I thought the most telling thing yesterday was Pete Carroll talking about the importance that Jamal Adams had in this past season, especially with no fans, the energy he brought. The energy is significant, too. And here is Pete Carroll talking about that. No, yeah, that's that was a it's, that was really kind of the theme for last year. That wherever you were playing, you had to generate your own support and your own juice and, and energy. And and he's one of those guys. Uh, what I don't know that our fans realized last year is how he played hurt and played one armed for a, a number of games when the shoulder was bad. And uh, if you're at the stadium, you probably could see that more clearly, you know. But the toughness that he demonstrated and the grit and all all the beautiful aspects that he he. You know, he he put forth was uh, our fans. I think will come to understand that and appreciate him. I think he he's really something. Coaches will always say your best players have to have their best seasons for your team to win. And Jamal Adams is at that spot where it's it's not just his best seasons; it's the effect he has on the guys around him. Right? You're pairing him with Quandre Diggs, who, by the way, you hope gets extended. Like this is the excitement. It shouldn't just be, oh, thank goodness he's signed. There should be a level of excitement about, like, okay, what's this defense going to be with Jamal Adams at the center of it for the next four or five years? And that is a good question because it depends on some of the other parts on the defense. You're going to have to hit on some of the draft picks. This is a weird year where you're not really bringing in a whole lot of reinforcements outside of 
Trey Brown defensively, young guys that you're expecting to develop and grow into role players at the very least down the road, if not starters. You're hoping Jordan Brooks becomes a stud, right? He has to. Yeah, you're hoping he becomes like an absolute dreadnought linebacker and someone who is your the the reasonable expectation is that Daryl Taylor shows himself to be an adequate starter this year, right? He hasn't played uh, uh, he hasn't played since he got here, but he's a second round pick, someone you estimate, and he's going to play strong side linebacker for you. You should have a deeper pass rush. Bobby Wagner's the the guy in the middle that you count on to be Mister Reliable and, and to clean everything up, and and then you've got two great safeties. Your biggest question marks really come at corner. And I'll tell you this, I think that's the best spot for Seattle to have question marks. That's the spot where they've been most most successful at finding guys that are capable of doing that that didn't have much of a pedigree. That's the spot where they've been best at finding dudes. That's true. DJ Reed is the latest example. Yep. I like what I'm seeing out of Trey Brown thus far. But they also were a historically bad defense in the first half of last year. Yes. And I think a lot of that was as much cornerbacks as it was the lack of a pass rush. Certainly all works together. They did not get great cornerback play. And the fact that DJ Reed became established as a starter midway through the season and you moved on from Shaquille Griffin, who was a good but never quite great corner. And look, this team, the last... The last pro bowler on defense that they drafted, the last pro bowler on defense that they drafted after there was Bobby Wagner in 2012 and the next one was Shaquille Griffin and Griffin made it as an alternate, right? Like that, they have, they have not been able to draft and fight, but they have found guys in the secondary, a fifth round pick for Quandre Diggs, who was a pro bowler last year. They traded a seventh-round pick for Justin Coleman, who was a really good nickel corner for them and went and got a huge contract with Detroit. By the way, he got released. Seventh-round pick for Carlos Dunlap, whose contract you were able to renegotiate into a more manageable one this season and going forward. Like all of those different things, they've been able to find guys, but you're going to need to see and going to want to see some growth. And corner, corner is probably the spot that I would say is their biggest question mark headed into this season. Yeah, and I, I... I think that there there might be even more uncertainty at the position, and maybe I'm basing too much off after having gone to practice yesterday, but I, I, I found it interesting the amount of opportunities that guys that you wouldn't expect were out there. I guess that's that's the closest I can come to revealing things that I saw out there. Yeah, I, I, I think they're still figuring out the answers to that. I don't think they liked what they saw on Saturday. And honestly, I, I didn't like what I saw. On Saturday, you know, I mean, it's it's Nathan Peterman that you're going up against as a quarterback, and it's not to say that, you know, Peterman didn't make some really nice throws in that game. Those guys got to make plays. It's it's Nathan Peterman still at the end of the day, you know, even if you're giving him credit, it's still him. It's so funny because I ended up like writing it off like you do in the preseason. Anything you see good in the preseason, you're like, oh, imagine how much better this is going to be when he yep. gets to the real. Oh, like if yeah. they're doing this now when it doesn't matter. And anything that's bad that you see in the preseason, it's like, well, it's just preseason. It doesn't matter. Because I went and looked at it and I was like, well, how many third down conversions do they have? Like five third down conversions, like on that first drive. I'm like, well, it doesn't really matter. They didn't have their pass rush out there. Like if, if Carlos Dunlap's on the field, if Puna Ford's playing, if they've got some of those other, LJ Collier played some. But I'm not, I'm not that I'm not that worried about it because they really didn't have their pass rush unit out there. Which sure, yeah, but it was still it's Nathan Peterman. The Raiders didn't have their starting quarterback either, and he picked him apart on third down. Their defensive linemen were the standouts of that game, and yet the issues were still there. You know, I, I thought Rasheem Green, Alton Robinson had pretty good games. Daryl Taylor, I know this is the word that you hear everyone say at this time of year, flashed. 
I mean, he looked fast, but yeah, the corners corners are going to be a, a a big question mark, I think, this year. And you know, Jamal Adams, his coverage ability is not going to make up for them, unfortunately. It's Danny and Gallant coming up next. We're going to raise flags. That's ahead. From the pocket and flags everywhere. Flag on the play. Now there's a flag down. Every morning at 945 with Danny and Gallant. Brought to you by Carter Volkswagen. If the noise persists, the defense will be charged with a timeout. Flag on the play. It is Danny and Gallant. Today we sort through the previous three hours. Got some to choose from. It's calling someone a unicorn. Pete Carroll saying a defensive unicorn that he has, which apparently we learned is unicorn is the is the national animal for Scotland. Is that correct? Yeah, for uh, a percentage of my ancestry, which I was surprised by as well. So they're known for their innocence and purity, but also for their power and masculinity, which is interesting because My Little Pony seems to have uh, taken it in another direction that is not entirely masculine. So that's a candidate. I'm going to go ahead and start off. I'm going to throw a flag on Jack Morris. Uh, Jack Morris is part of the broadcast team for the Detroit Tigers. Uh, The Tigers were playing Shohei Otani and the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim last night. And uh, during an at-bat that resulted in a walk, here was what Jack Morris said when he was asked how you approach Shohei Otani. Now what do you do with Shohei Otani? Be very, very careful. Now, people reacted and saying, okay, it's using some, it's using an accent of debatable accuracy to describe an, an Asian player in, in Shohei Otani. I, I want to point out that Morris did apologize later. This was before Shohei Otani's a bat later in the game. Here's his apology. Well, folks, uh, Shohei Otani is coming to the plate and, uh, been brought to my attention and i sincerely apologize if i offended anybody especially anybody in the asian community for what i said about pitching and being careful to uh, jose or shohei otani i did not intend for any offensive thing and i apologize if i did certainly respect and have the utmost respect for this guy and uh, don't blame a pitcher for walking I, I want to give him credit for apologizing, and instead of picking out and saying, okay, apologizing for offending, I, I think it would be more helpful if people pointed out why it's offensive. And so here's just a, just a, because I think it's important that we learn and understand these sort of things instead of saying like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that, because maybe, maybe he didn't know. That's possible. We do need to give people, not the grace, but instead of, here's the problem with that. It is... Mocking, but also creating and perpetuating a caricature of not just Japanese or a Japanese player in Shohei Otani, but all Asian people and by extension, all Asian American people. It, it, it generalizes. Is he making a specifically Japanese accent? Probably not. Is he making something that's vaguely what used to be described as Oriental? Like, is, is probably more of what it is. And it creates anybody who's seen, like, the chop suey lettering or the buck-toothed sort of caricatures that are created, it's creating an, an identity that is something that is other and mockable. And people who are Asian Americans, 
who have been born in this country do not speak with accents also get sort of branded with that or mocked with those sort of things. So the reason that it's it it's best to not do that, why some people consider it offensive, is because it's often used by a tool, sometimes by people that don't realize they're doing it, to, to brand them as other or un-American or even if someone has, has moved here... Mocking their accent is a lame thing to do just in general, right? Someone's trying their best to speak English and the reaction is to make fun of them. But more than that, it creates an, an identity that is that is defined as being foreign and, 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 and sort of subjecting them to ridicule. So I thought by explaining that, that might be better because everybody reacts like, oh my gosh, you should be... I, I don't really care about... Jack Morris and whether or not he continues or gets punished. I don't want him to do that again. And I think there's a good reason for him not to do that again. And I think we all can learn something for it from it. I like the way that you explained that, because if you go back, we watched that Bruce Lee 30 for 30 that ESPN put together. And in the course of that documentary, it sort of shows some of the negative stereotypes that have been put out specifically during World War Two as part of propaganda video that have been put out by the United States government. And, you know, look, you're trying to drive wartime morale up and, and get people to volunteer for the armed services to fight Japan after what happened in Pearl Harbor. But, you know, things continued and you had internment camps in the United States, which is still a pretty big black eye, I would say, on our country. And it's something that I think we had a difficult time getting away from because I know a lot of people probably had grandparents who came back from the war who completely looked at those who were of Asian descent in a completely different light. And you know what? Honestly, for those people, I mean, goodness gracious, what they saw, the horrors, the atrocities of the war in the South Pacific, you can sort of see why. But as time has gone on, you know, these are things that we need to get away from. And this does feel like someone who's old, out of touch, who perhaps saw some of these things that were maybe used in situations like that in a somewhat mocking way and probably thought nothing of it. It's bad, but you want to give people who screw up the chance to apologize and hopefully learn from it as opposed to putting them in jail forever for something like this. So I I really liked your explanation there, man. That was good. Every every person who is Asian or Asian American in this country has had that sort of mock accent said to them. They've had what people refer to as the eye thing where people will pull on the corners of their eyes to and it stinks. It is it is a mocking gesture that makes people feel marginalized and minimized. And, and that's the reason to not do it. Uh, some people are suggesting, hey, this was an Elmer Fudd quote or something like that. Whatever the case, like, okay. No, dude, he's mocking maybe. an accent. It's not, it's, yeah. it is It is not Elmer Fudd. No, he's mocking an accent. And that's why he apologized for it. He did apologize. Mora! Uh, w- well said, guys. I, yeah, I had a, one of my best friends is Korean, but she was adopted. And grew up here. And when, when I worked with her at a bar, I can't tell you how many military guys would just walk up and start speaking Korean to her. And she would tell them that she didn't speak Korean and they just wouldn't let it go. And I would get more mad. She was just used to it and would just deal with it. But I would get mad at them. <laughs> like, she's American. Stop it. They're like, but I speak Korean. Well, she doesn't. Leave her alone. <laughs> yes. It's, yes. They're just, they're, we just, yeah, need to be more, um, more understanding. Simply being more thoughtful. And that- how we would want to be treated. <laughs> <laughs> in general, but I thought you said that very well, Danny. Uh, I am going to raise a flag for Jamal Adams' mom because I feel like, according to him, 
That is why we have him back with the Seahawks today. Maybe about, well, she didn't call me. She texted me, then I called her. Uh, she called me, um, and texted me about 12 o'clock uh, back home in Dallas. Um, and she just basically, she said my full name. And when my mother says my full name, I think I need to pay attention. Uh, she gave me a nice little uh, paragraph and, you know, basically just told me that you don't have to prove anything else to, to anybody. You did it. You did enough. We're happy. And as long as my family's happy, man, and, and, and I'm happy, I can come and do what I love to do. That's all that matters to me, man. I'm not, I'm not really into the other things uh, that, you know, everybody wants me to be in. I'm not into it. Uh, my family's happy, and that's what matters to me. You said that was last night? That she was yeah. Okay. So thanks to Jamal Adams' mom for bringing the juice back. Mom's rule. Yeah. Let him know. You better sign this. He's like, oh, mama called. <laughs> Paul, what do you got? I am going to, well, raise a flag because I'm hoping that Chris Bassett is okay after getting absolutely smashed in the face with a line drive during yesterday's A's loss. It was a really scary moment. He had a displaced tripod fracture in his left cheek. He was bleeding all over the place. I hope he's okay. This is just me, but as someone who has seen balls hit players in the head that I know, like high school teammates of mine, and also having the same experience, I can only imagine how dangerous it is for a pitcher out there. What's This might be a good idea going forward, but, you know, why not have helmets for pitchers? Why not have face masks for pitchers? Because these moments that take place... They are extremely dangerous, and a pitcher is completely defenseless out there when he makes his movement towards home plate, where he is extending his leg. There is almost zero room for that person to dodge out of the way. We see it in softball. It does look a little dorky, I guess, and maybe that's the reason why you wouldn't do it. But if we're putting netting across the baseball stadium, shouldn't we have a little bit more protection for pitchers out there? We've seen helmets evolve in a way where now you've got these chins, these uh, chin pieces essentially that are blocking your face from as much contact as possible. Why not take it a little bit further? Just a suggestion, an idea I had after seeing that take place, and hopefully Chris Bassett's going to be okay. Stunk, stunk watching that. Absolutely stunk watching that. You just feel, you feel for him because everybody feels awful. It's the same when a pitcher hits a, a batter in the face. You're like, oh, man, I did not want that to happen. Uh, yeah, really, really tough. I wonder, would, would you wear a helmet if you were? Yeah. Olerud wore a helmet when he pitched. He'd had a he'd had a brain injury before, a brain aneurysm before. But when he pitched for the Cougs, he wore a helmet. I think I would. A texture says, Paul, pitchers know the risk. They don't want to do that. That's why people play football. Look, I, I, I just feel like, why not? What's what's the harm? You know, maybe make that an option. I think some pitchers should think about it. And maybe if I'm Chris Bassett, I come back. I'm, I'm I might be doing it. That's going to do it for us. Congratulations to Jamal Adams on the new contract extension to the Seahawks as well. We appreciate Michael Bumpus joining us today. Nick Belor, who was with us at 7:45, the Professor John Clayton for our morning drive. Mora Dooley keeps us on the straight and narrow, and he is Paul Gallant and. Yeah, he's going to take it to the people of New York. How you like him now? Frank Clark style. And uh, he is Danny O'Neill. And he stands alone supporting the UW Huskies who are ranked number 20.
It's <laughs> true. I, I didn't I didn't have anything there. Apologies for that one. Up next, are the Seahawks going to come to regret the Jamal Adams contract? We'll talk about that next on the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle.